Father, thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who helps us to understand these words that you have breathed out and inspired and spoken for our good so that we might hear you, hear your voice today speaking through these words into our hearts and into our lives. May you now open our eyes, soften our hearts so that we hear what you're saying and that we come and we humble ourselves before you and we come to Jesus and believe the good news we find in this letter and in the whole of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the doctor looks the patient in the eye. This is a very serious diagnosis. If you do not have the operation that you need, you will not live for more than a few weeks. What happens if I just ignore it, doctor? If you ignore it, then you will die. Can I go on holiday first and just enjoy myself a bit? You can't afford to wait. You need to deal with this now. If we act now, we can heal you, but if we wait any longer, the consequences will be devastating. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of news like that. I hope not. Uh, maybe you've even given it to others. But the devastating diagnosis is never easy to hear. But sometimes a painful diagnosis like that is what we need to hear because it's the first step to recovery and healing. And that is what we find in these verses in Romans. Last week we heard Paul begin his letter with good news. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, just before the reading that we heard in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. But why is this good news of salvation that comes through faith necessary? Well, it's necessary because of the devastating diagnosis facing human beings without Jesus, because, as he goes on, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, it's not easy, is it, to, to talk about or think about God's wrath or anger. It sets off all kinds of alarm bells. You know, isn't it just scaremongering for Paul to talk in this way? I think Paul the Apostle would say it's like the, the painful diagnosis in the doctor's surgery. If this is true, we need to hear it, however painful it is to hear, so that we can do something about it. We can come to the solution that God offers. But we need first to hear the diagnosis. When we talk about God's wrath or his anger, that can also trigger other painful Feelings associated with anger in other people, maybe from the past, maybe from the present. Now, it's very important to see that that's very different from God's wrath in uh, the way that uh, it's talked about in the Bible. You see, God is not angered generally by the things that normally anger us. They're two very different things. And he's not angered in the way that we generally get angry. You know, we fly off the handle when things don't go our way, when we reach the end of our tether. 
Now, God's anger was summed up by John Stott like this, as being his settled and perfectly righteous antagonism to evil. See, what angers God is not, you know, the dishwasher has been left unloaded again. No, it's not things like that. What angers God is the evil and injustice in the world. You know, when we turn on the news and we hear of another stabbing on our doorstep in North London. Do we want a God who is indifferent to that and doesn't care? No, God is a God of justice. He hates evil. He will ensure that it is punished. He will ensure that all wrong is put right. But the striking thing in these verses that we have in front of us this morning is that we're not yet hearing about a future day of judgment when God's wrath will be revealed one day. We'll come to that in chapter 2. As Paul continues this devastating diagnosis that he begins in these verses, and it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. But here in these verses, the striking thing is that God's wrath is being spoken about as a present day thing that God is revealing here and now. And we're going to see how that is in these verses. Now, I, I initially planned, as I came to this and I planned the series, I was planning to speak on all of 18 to 32. But it turns out there is so much in these verses that we, we can't really skim over. Um, and once I'd prepared about literally over 45 minutes worth of material, I thought, I think we're probably going to have to cut this in half. So I don't normally do this um, and adjust things as, I, as we go along like that. Uh, but this is the kind of passage that I think we need to take a little bit more slowly than I had initially planned. And I know as you heard it read, you may well have had questions, particularly around the middle bit about verses 24 to 27. We're going to look very briefly at the, towards the end of the sermon at, verses, at the second half of the passage, but we're really going to focus in on verses 24 to 27 and, and, the, and 28 to 32 next week. So I'm going to look at that in more detail then. I'm going to shuffle things around for the rest of the series in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, but our main focus is going to be on verses 18 to 23 now and, and a little bit on, on the rest of it just to see how it fits together. As Paul begins to unpack this truth of why God is angry with all human beings. The thing to remember as we go through this is the more devastating the diagnosis, the more grateful we should be for the Saviour. That, that is why this is here. And this is why Christians need to still hear this as much as anybody else. But if we're Christians trusting in Jesus, this is not what God thinks of us now. And it's really important to, to get our heads around that. And we'll see how that can possibly be true later in, in Romans. But from God's point of view, if we're trusting in Jesus now, this is our past and not our present and the point is that the more we understand our past, the better we understand what it means to be loved and saved and justified by faith. Like a patient who realises, you know, I wasn't just saved from a mild headache, I was saved from a really aggressive tumour. And so my gratitude in that context goes off the scale. See, remember, Paul's ultimate aim in writing this letter is to get his readers to unite around the gospel... Jew and Gentile, people from all different types of backgrounds. He wants them to unite around the gospel in order to be energised for mission, to take this good news, this gospel, to the world. 
And one of the, the great drivers of both unity and mission is gratitude for what God has done. And that's what we're going to see as we reflect now on this painful diagnosis. So what can we see then in verses 18 to 23 about why God's wrath is coming? Well, first of all, God's wrath is coming because human beings suppress the truth. So if you, there's a slide, I think, if you can find that and put that up. God's wrath is coming because human beings suppress the truth. In verses 18 to 20, lots of people think the reason God might be angry is something to do with rule-breaking. Isn't that right? You know, people have broken the rules. And so, you know, God is a sort of uh, teacher getting cross about that. No, the, the, the reason God is angry is not really to do with whether or not we've kept a list of slightly arbitrary rules, but it's something much simpler. It is that we are truth suppressors. Now, what, what truth are we talking about here? Well, the truth is that there is a God who made the world and to whom we owe everything as a result. That is the truth that we suppress, that we pretend isn't true. That's what he's saying in, in verses 19 and 20. So Paul here is dealing with the kind of objection that says, you can't tell me that God is angry with me because I don't believe in him. And that's because there's no evidence at all that he exists. And if in the end it turned out he did exist, well, I would say to him, why didn't you make yourself clearer then? Because frankly, there's absolutely no evidence of God's existence whatsoever beyond the fact that Christians go on about him all the time. Now, have you heard that kind of thing expressed to you? Maybe it's your objection yourself as you listen this morning. Well, Paul is saying here, there is enough evidence in the world around us to mean that there is no excuse for not knowing that there is a God and that we owe him everything. Now, he's talking particularly in this second half of chapter 1 about Gentiles, non-Jews, the Jews, the, the people of God, that, uh, he, the, the story of how God saves the world begins with the Jews in the Old Testament, uh, but always for the benefit of the entire world. And he speaks in this letter to both Jews and Gentiles in different ways in order to bring them together around Jesus. And in chapter 2, he will move on spe more specifically to Jews as well. But this here is focused in verses 18 to 32, on those who haven't had God reveal himself to them by rescuing them from Egypt as a people and giving them the law at Sinai. And so somebody might say, well, I can see why God's people, the Jews, I can see why they should be expected to believe in God because of all these things and God's had these personal dealings with them and you can see that through the story of the Old Testament. But, you know, the rest of us who weren't caught up in that Old Testament story, you know, well, I, you know, we're different. There's no, nothing's been said to us about God. And Paul says, no, there are no excuses for anyone. Now, do you remember if you were around last summer with us at St. John's, um, we had some COVID conversations. And one of them, we've, well, they're still there on YouTube if you go looking for them, but one of them uh, was um, an interview with Dr. Andrew Satch, who is a church leader and former neuroscience researcher. And uh, he talked about a number of ways in which science and the study of the natural world points us towards God. And it points us towards him and not away from him, which is what people often assume science does. You know, there's things like the fact that we exist at all points us towards a God. 
because everything that exists has a cause. You know, what caused the universe? Well, you know, those scientists will say, well, the Big Bang caused the universe. And uh, in that interview, if you go and listen to it, Andrew Satch points out that, that, you know, the Big Bang theory is actually helpful for Christians because it, it means everybody agrees that the universe had a start, has a beginning, rather than, for example, the, the, the idea that the universe had no beginning and then you don't have to explain where it comes from. Now, nobody believes that. Not even atheist scientists believe that. But then the question, of course, is, well, what or, or who caused the Big Bang? And more than that, when we look around us in the world, as Paul talks about here, what do we see in the world around us? We see beauty that we can't explain, beauty in the natural world and in our own lives. And we experience joy and we feel very deeply that there is such a thing as good and such a thing as evil. Now the thing is, atheism and that kind of naturalistic way of looking at the world, it cannot explain any of those things. It cannot explain why we should find anything beautiful. No, it's just random. It's not beautiful. It doesn't have any value. It cannot explain why we experience joy and love and what that is. It doesn't make any sense on an atheistic, naturalistic worldview. It is just random. And it cannot explain where good and evil come from. Now, Paul isn't saying that we should be able to look at the world around us and conclude that, you know, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we know exactly what he's like just from looking at the world. That's not his point. In technical terms, this is about natural revelation, not saving revelation of God. So something of God's glory is revealed in his creation. Like Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. But you see, to know him personally, we need his revelation in Christ and through the scriptures. That's his special saving revelation. So it's not, it's not that there's enough to save us if we look at the world around us, but there is enough to mean that we are without excuse if we ignore all the ways in which our world points us to the fact that there is a God who made this world and this universe that we live in. So it's a bit like moving into a new office that used to be occupied by someone else. And you open a desk drawer and you find a pen. And on the pen is inscribed, For Peter with love. And you think, ah, no idea who Peter is, stuff it and you chuck it in the bin. And the next day, Peter comes looking for his pen that he left in the desk before he vacated the office. Now, what do you say to him? You know, the, the, the pen couldn't tell you very much about him, could it? But it could tell you he existed, and that that pen might mean something to him, and that, you know, maybe he might come looking for it. And he might then be justifiably upset that you just threw it in the bin when you found it. So you see, it's a bit like that. See, Paul's point is not that people should, you know, believe and conclude everything that we can possibly know about God because of what we find um, in creation. Actually, it's a bit more simple than that. He's not saying that we should go around and try and convince everybody by you know, doing the, 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 look, looking at creation, saying, look, look how it shows there's a God, and you know, do the arguments. Actually, his point is even simpler than that. 
It's pretty blunt. He's saying, no, they already believe there is a God. They already know that. It shouldn't be news to anyone that there is a God who made us. But we prefer to suppress that truth. It's more convenient to us to pretend that it's not true. That is Paul's point here. I think this has implications for when we're talking to friends who aren't believers, who aren't followers of Jesus. Um, it's tempting, you see, sometimes it's tempting to sort of want to get into all these arguments, you know, the cosmological argument for the existence of God and all those kind of things. And we know, on the other hand, from experience, that those kind of conversations often go around in circles because people will come back and they've got a different way of seeing what the, the evidence of the world around us points to. But actually, Paul is saying, well, this is, do you know why that is? Do you know why we have those circular conversations that sort of don't go anywhere? It's because people are suppressing the truth. That we know deep down, even if we won't consciously admit it, that there is a God who made us. And we have a vested interest in saying God isn't there. You know, the atheist might say to the Christians, you know, you've got a vested interest in believing in God, but, but actually we need to say that back to the atheist. You've got a vested interest in believing there isn't one. And what is actually going to change people's hearts then is not the kind of most carefully nuanced version of the arguments, you know, the cosmological argument or whatever it is. What is going to change people's hearts is this gospel, this good news that we find in God's word, that we see in Jesus. That's what we need to keep focusing on with our non-Christian friends. It should chime in on some level, some deep level with what we know from the world around us. But the reality is we are truth suppressors and that is enough to mean that we are without excuse, says Paul. And therefore God's wrath is coming. Well, what, did, what then does that suppressing of the truth look like? What form does it take? Well, he goes on to explain that in verses 21 to 23. So let's look at that secondly. God's wrath, if you put the next slide up, God's wrath is coming because human beings exchange God's glory for idols. Verses 21 to 23. Human beings exchange God's glory for idols. Instead of worshipping the true God, we worship created things. Birds, animals, reptiles, he says. The Bible elsewhere calls this idolatry, the worship of idols. Now those idols that we worship, instead of worshipping the true God, they, they can sometimes be physical objects, they can be things that aren't physical too, like our health and wealth and security and pleasure. And we live for these things instead of living for the true God who made us. And that is why, Paul says, that is why God is angry, because we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, as he puts it again in verse 25. Now, one symptom of this, he says in verse 21, is a refusal to give thanks to the God who made us. We refuse to give thanks to the God who made us. Here's an, I'm going to show you a video in a second, if you just want to get that ready for a second. Here's an interesting positive picture of what giving thanks to God looked like for one person. So we're going to see a mother and son. If you just pause it for a second, just pause it. 
you can. Uh, there's a mother and son sitting at a computer, <coughs> and <coughs> the son is, is waiting for the results of his bar exam. Okay, so in, the, in the United States, where they, you know, they do the exam to become a lawyer, the bar exam, and he's, 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 the result is about to flash up on the screen. So mother and son waiting. Let's see what happens. Now, that, that video is, it was, has actually been trending on social media this week. <clears throat> People have been watching this um, mother and son receiving that news and that response. But what's been really interesting is to see the responses to that, then the comments that come up underneath. And one of the main things that people have been saying is, uh, what, what, why is that, why are they thanking God? <laughs> what? What's God got to do with it, people have said. What's Jesus got to do with this? Why isn't she saying well done to her son for all the hard work that he's put in to pass this exam? Instead, she's waffling on about, about the God and you know, thanking him and how ridiculous that is. And so all these comments uh, come and, uh, and, and, and express this. Now, that was just 45 seconds of response, wasn't it? And, and you know, no doubt a Christian parent in that situation would also get around to saying, well done for the hard work and all the rest of it. But there's a basic point there, isn't there? That, that, that people have really sort of reacted against in one sense, although people have also been sort of had their hearts warmed by the emotion and the, the, the joy that is there. But there's a basic point. If God is there and he's our creator, and he's in charge, and he's at work in his world, should we not give him thanks in all things, in fact? Not merely when things go well. Not merely when we pass the exam. But certainly in those kind of situations like that one, our instinct should be to say, thank you, Lord, for what you've given us. And actually, more than that, how much does our tendency to grumble about our circumstances betray a sense of suppressing the truth that God is there? Which is exactly what Paul is talking about here. You know, there's a way in which grumbling is really a form of practical atheism. You know, I'm fed up with my life, and either there's no God, which is why everything is so rubbish, or, you know, there is a God, but I don't trust that he's working for my good. And I'm forgetting all the ways in which he's blessed me by giving me a life to live and people who care for me and whatever else we might be able to list off. So do you see, this is what we're not like. And actually Paul's point here, although it's easy to make this point, but Paul's point here is not, come on everybody, let's be more thankful. That isn't what Paul's point is here. His point is to say, look at what we're really like, naturally. Look at what human beings are naturally like. This is how we are. If we're honest, this is how we are, that we're not thankful. 
to the God who made us. And he explains it further in, exchange, in terms of an exchange of glory for idols. And there are lots of echoes in the language that he uses here of Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And we heard that first reading. And if you, you know, if you, later on you can go and, and, and look very closely at the kind of words that are used and spot the, uh, the, the links between them. So he talks about the creation of the world, verse 20 in Romans chapter 1. He talks about the classifications of creatures into birds and animals and reptiles, the language of glory and image and likeness. This is all Genesis language that Paul uses here. He talks about human beings knowing God, which is like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He talks about the desire to become wise. That's what Eve said as she, she bit into the fruit that she realized that this was good for wisdom. And he says they, they, they wanted to be wise, but they became foolish. Uh, Paul talks about the refusal to remain dependent on God, but to set themselves up independently of him. The exchange of God's truth for the serpent's lie, the understanding that rebellion deserves death. So you see, it's, all, it's the language that Paul is using here in Romans 1 is Genesis chapters 1 to 3 language. And the point then is that this is a general rebellion of humanity against its creator. That is what Paul is describing here. We were made in God's image to reflect his glory into the world, but instead we prefer to worship created things and try to reflect their glory instead. And do you notice that this helps us to understand why he speaks of the rebellion in the past tense? So he says, they claimed to be wise, but they became fools and exchanged the glory. And then verse 21, they, they, they knew God, but they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. If he, was, if he was sort of describing us here and now primarily, you'd expect him to use the present tense to say, this is what we do. But he says, this is what happened. So what past event is he talking about? Well, he, he's reflecting how things started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. This is, first of all, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, and then in them, because we too are human beings descended from them, and in their likeness, it's also our sin too. And actually in chapter 5 in Romans, when we get there eventually, Paul will return to the idea of all of humanity sinning in Adam, but then all of God's people being saved in Christ. So God's, uh, uh, God's wrath is coming because human beings have exchanged God's glory for idols. And then as we, as we finish, we, we see finally what God has done about this. So thirdly, if you go on to the next one, God's, in his wrath, has handed human beings over to their sin. Has that not come through, that third is there a third slide there? There is one. No, don't worry. Well, God in his wrath has handed human beings over to their sin. From, and that, this is verses 24 to 32. Now, as I said, we're going to look next week at the details of, of these 24 to 32. But this just helps us begin to see how God's wrath is played out on human beings. Three times in these verses, Paul says, God gave them over. He gave them over. Can you see that in verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28? He gave them over. When we think of God's anger, you know, we might think of you know, lightning bolts or the sky or fire, brimstone. But this is, 
saying the way God expresses his anger with the sin of human beings here and now is actually, first of all, to just give us exactly what we want. You know, you, you want to worship created things instead of the, me who, who, who made you? Well, go ahead. See how that works out for you. That's what he says. He gives us over to our sin. When I was a teacher a number of years ago, there was a particularly challenging bottom set year seven maths class that I engaged in battle with uh, week after week. And one time after a particularly vexed lesson, as the boys were, there was a boys' school, they, they were packing up their bags and one of them piped up, <clears throat> I hate maths and I hate Mr. Watts. Now it so happened that the head teacher was teaching next in that classroom that we were in. And he was a fearsome uh, chap and you didn't want to mess with him. And so as he sort of came in to, to get ready for his lesson, I, I said to him, um, Mr. Weeks, what would you say if a boy in year seven said to you that they hate maths and they hate you as their teacher? And he said to me, who said that? And I pointed out the young man in question and he said, he said, he said, to, the, said to this little boy, come here, take your tie off, you are no longer a member of this school. And you know, what, what, what followed was shock and horror and floods of tears and uh, things were later sorted out and I received in due course a lovely kind of misspelt letter of, of apology. But he was making the point, if you don't want to be in this system, if you, if you don't want to be under the authority that you're in, in this school, well, you don't have to be. Take off your tie, you're no longer a member of this school. But of course, the pretty obvious implication of that is, see how that works out for you. And he realized pretty quickly that that was not a situation that he wanted to be in. Now, that is the kind of thing that God is doing here with his world. That's how his wrath and his righteous anger at the way human beings have refused to worship him, that is how that pl is played out in our lives. And we'll see the details of that next time, as I said. But therefore, don't be too quick to look at the world around us and say, you know, when I look at the world, I don't see any evidence of God. All I see is people getting away with evil. Because that's what we often think, isn't it? Paul would say, no, do you know what? That is exactly what you should expect to see. And it's not a sign of the absence of God. It's not a sign of the weakness of God. It's a sign that God has handed human beings over to their sin. And he's letting human beings now experience the consequences here and now of living life without reference to him. So that they might then reach out and put their trust in Jesus when they hear the good news about him. Now we'll see, as I say, we'll look at verses 24 to 32 and the details of what they say. But for now we need to remember the wrath of God is being revealed against human sin, against our sin. But in the gospel, in the, the good news, as we saw last week, the righteousness of God is revealed. When we put our trust in Jesus, from God's perspective, this becomes our past and not our present. We do continue to sin, even as we trust in Jesus, 
but united to him. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness given to us through his death. And we get to enjoy the relationship with him that we were created for. But to understand that and to appreciate that, we have to get the diagnosis straight. And that diagnosis is going to continue to be spelt out until chapter 3, verse 20. But let's ensure then that that diagnosis drives us to Jesus because he is the doctor, he is the medicine, he is the treatment, he is the solution to our deepest problem. He's our greatest saviour. So let's pray now. Father God, these are hard truths to hear about ourselves and about our world. But if we're honest, we know they are true words. We're sorry for how we have ourselves suppressed the truth about who you are, about how everything we have comes from you, that we prefer to grumble rather than to give thanks that we prefer to live for idols rather than living for you who made us. And that we deserve to be handed over to the consequences of our sin, even here and now, even before we think about the judgment we deserve when Jesus returns to judge the world. So today, may we flee to Jesus and put our trust in him and find in him the good news of a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Help us to see and to understand more and more what that means. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.